Have you ever wondered what Jesus is doing right now? Anybody ever wonder about that? That's the sort of thing I think about when sometimes in my mind wanders. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw in Titus that we, if you look at Titus chapter 2, we live between the two appearings of Christ. He's already come and he's coming again. And hopefully, most of us will have a pretty good idea of what Jesus has done in the past, in his first coming. All the things that he's already done for us, all the things that he's already accomplished. We probably have a good idea of you know, something of his life on earth, his teaching, his ministry, his miracles, his death, his resurrection to save sinners, and then his ascension into heaven. So we have a pretty good grasp of what happened in the past, Jesus' work in the past. And no doubt, if we were to kind of have a conversation together now, we'd probably have a decent idea of what Jesus is going to do in the future, that he's going to come back again, that he's going to return and he's going to bring final judgment on those who have refused and rejected him, and he's going to bring full and final salvation to those who have accepted him and trusted in him, and he's going to then fix everything and make it all new, and it's going to be fantastic. So we have a pretty good idea of his past work and his future work, but do you ever wonder what he's doing right now? Is he just sat back on his throne waiting? Has he entered into a kind of a semi-retirement? And these are the kind of thoughts that run through my head. You know, is Jesus pottering around doing a spot of gardening? You know, you read in Revelation 22 that in the city there's going to be a tree of life that flows with a river flowing from it and it's going to bear fruit and the leaves are going to be for the healing of the nations. And so I think, well, I wonder if he's doing a spot of gardening. Maybe you don't think that. Maybe you think he's binge-watching The Chosen while he's waiting to return. No, they didn't get that right. Oh, no, that's a pretty good representation of what I was like. You know, maybe that's what he's doing. Or maybe he's perfecting his golf swing and trying to get his handicap down, along with Peter and Gabriel. Or maybe you think, no, 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 he was a carpenter. And so he's told us in John 16 that he is going to his father's house to prepare a place for us. So maybe he's renovating it. Maybe he's redecorating. Maybe he's painting the walls afresh, getting it ready for his eternal guests. What is Jesus doing now? Maybe that's a question you've never thought about because you just decided that he said in John 19, it is finished. And so he's not doing anything right now. Now the good news is from Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, we're not left to guess or speculate about what Jesus is doing right now. But our one verse wonder is going to tell us all about the work that Jesus is doing in heaven today. So it's Hebrews 7 verse 25. Now, let me just uh, tie it into what Matt was saying to us last week. So Matt was in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 last week and he reminded us that in all the glorious holiness of heaven, Jesus is not aloof from his people, but his gracious heart beats just as strongly as it ever did with a tender love for his people. And that there are two things in particular that stir up and draw out his compassion for us as his people. And that's the afflictions and the sufferings that we endure in this broken world. And also the sins that we commit. Almost unbelievably, those two things stir up his compassion towards us. And we heard last week that Jesus is a great high priest. He's able to sympathize with us in, his, in our weaknesses. But it's not a just kind of a put your arm around uh, a shoulder and say, oh, there, there, you know, oh, oh, like your grandma might do to you when you graze your knee. No, the sympathy and the heart of Jesus in heaven for us that we heard all about last week is expressed through the work of Jesus in heaven right now. 
So today we're going to spend a little bit of time exploring the work of Jesus in heaven, which is uniquely reflective of his heart for us in heaven. So let's read the text together this morning. Verse 25 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. Here's what the writer says. Consequently, he, speaking about Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's God's word to us. And in order to, to kind of squeeze the juices out of it, we're going to ask four questions of the text this morning. We're going to ask, what is the work of Jesus in heaven? How does he do the work? Who is the work for? And what are the effects of the work? Now, I know I whizzed through those quickly, but don't worry because we'll cover them as we go. But the first question is this. What is the work of, heaven, uh, work of Jesus in heaven? What is he doing? Well, if you look back at verse 25, it begins with this word, consequently, which indicates that the writer is drawing some conclusions from what he's previously said. Now, if we were to read a little bit back into chapter uh, 7, verses 22 to 24, what we'll see is that the author of Hebrews is comparing and contrasting the Old Testament priesthood of Aaron and his descendants with the priesthood of Jesus. So he's comparing the two priesthoods. Whereas, he will say, whereas the priests under the, in the order of Aaron, so those who were like Aaron and descended from Aaron, they were able to serve because of their ancestry, because they were born into the right family, uh, but they were hindered from serving God because they died. And the office passed to someone else. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's not of the order of Aaron. He wasn't born uh, in the family of Aaron. He wasn't born in the people of Levi who went on to become the priests. He was of the people of Judah. So Jesus, we're told, is of the priesthood of Melchizedek. A mysterious figure who shows up in Genesis 14 to meet Abraham. And he appears and he's described as the high priest of the Most High God. But he appears and then he disappears again without any record of his birth or his death or his genealogy or his ancestry or his parents or anything else. But he's a high priest of God. And the writer to the Hebrew says, Jesus is in the same order as Melchizedek. He's not. He's different from the priesthoods of Aaron and the Levites. And the big difference between these two orders is the Aaronic priests died. But Jesus has an indestructible life. He is able to continue in the office of priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus, who died and rose again and ascended and now lives forever, is, the, is, the, uh, is a superior high priest. He's a permanent high priest. Who he exercises a priesthood that never fails or fades or falters or ends. And therefore, he is the guarantor of a better covenant. He's able to do things that Aaron and the law of Moses and the sacrificial system and the tabernacle were not able to do. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us what that is in verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost. And that word able there in verse 25 doesn't just mean like he, he has the possibility of doing it. Like, yes, I am able to help you 
decorate your house this afternoon. Now, whether I will or not is another question, but I'm able. I'm physically strong. I'm a pretty good painter. I'm able. But that's not what it means here in verse 25. The word able means Jesus has the power to do it. And he most certainly will save to the uttermost sinners like you and me. So the work of Jesus in heaven is a work of salvation. Now you might say, well, it was finished, but let me get, stick with me because we'll see how it is a work of salvation. Now the first question we should ask if it's a work of salvation is, well, what is he saving us from? Well, the writer to the Hebrews in, in places like Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 and Hebrews chapter 9 verses 27 and 28 and Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 to 31 describe what Christ has saved us from as deliverance from the judgment of God against sin. So he saves us to the uttermost from God's judgment. And that word uttermost there means comprehensive. It means completely. It means exhaustively. It means in every single way that we needed it, he can and has saved us. So put it like this. We who are the uttermost sinners needed an uttermost saviour and we got one in Jesus. And he's not merely helping us get saved, or he's not merely saving us for the most part, or he's not merely doing 90% of the work, and then we sort of do the rest of the work to get up the hill of holiness, a little bit like, you know, Jesus is the electric bike that we might want, who when the going gets tough, he sort of kicks in and helps us get to the top of the hill. No, he doesn't do that. He 100% of the way does all the work. He saves us completely, he saves us fully, he saves us forever. That's what that word uttermost means. It's all pervasive, it's all encompassing. It means to the utmost degree, Jesus has saved you. And the salvation that he has wrought, is it lacks nothing. It has no defects, it has no bare patches, it has no expiry date. There's nothing defective about it. He saves to the uttermost. Now... If you're like me, you hear that and you think, yeah, but surely someone somewhere is simply too bad to be saved by Jesus. And maybe that person is me. You know, we think our shortcomings are too frequent. Our sins are too severe and serious. Our hearts are too hard. Our selfishness is too deep-seated for Christ to overcome. We think that our guilt is too entrenched in our souls that even the salvation that Jesus offers can't cleanse me from my sin. And we can think that the quality and the quantity of our sin is somehow greater than the quality and the quantity of God's grace and Jesus' saving work. And we think, well, there must be a limit to even what God can do. No one's that loving. No one's that patient, no one's that kind, no one's that forgiving, are they? And we think of God as, as, as we think of ourselves. We're fed up with our own failings, we're fed up with our own uh, sins, and we're convinced that God is too, and we think that he's, a, he's like a parent. You know, maybe it's a par something a parent said to us, or maybe it's something that we've said as a parent. I know I've said this. I am absolutely sick and tired of you and your stupidity and your sin. And we think God says that to us sometimes. 
But here, chapter 7, verse 25, tells us that although our experience of living in this world tells us that everybody has a boundary, everybody has a limit, everybody has a point beyond which they just can't go. No, 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 God is quite different. Here, verse 25 corrects us that if we think like that, if we think that God has a limit, that God can get fed up with us, that God is, that his saving work somehow cannot outrun or outpace our sin, then we have horribly misjudged God. We've horribly misjudged who he is and what he's like and we've horribly underestimated the saving power of Christ. The word uttermost here, I can't stress this enough, it means there are no lengths to which God in Christ will not go to save you. There are no sins that you have committed, that you are committing right now, that you will commit into the future from which God cannot forgive you. Jesus has accomplished everything that we need. He's accomplished what no one else can accomplish. He has left nothing undone. He does not and will not and has not failed or faltered. He saves utterly. He saves comprehensively. He saves completely. He saves fully. And he saves exhaustively those who will trust in him. Those who will turn to him. You know, many times we're tempted to look to someone or to something or to something else that will atone for our sins, that will make life better, that will make life worth living, that we trust in in order to get right with God, that will bring a sense of relief of our guilt. And every person and every promise and every strategy and every technique and every medication and every uh, counselling course that you might go on that is apart from Jesus will fail you. And that's not cynicism, that's just realism. Everything that you trust in, that we look to, to help us, that is apart from Jesus, will fail us. And that would be pretty discouraging. In fact, that would be pretty depressing if there was nothing else that we, could, that we were offered. But verse 25 tells us that there is hope-giving, life-transforming, joy-awakening, heart-thrilling good news Because we have a saviour who is able to save us to the uttermost. And he will not fail us. His forgiving, his redeeming, his restoring touch reaches down into the ugliest, darkest, deepest parts of your soul. The deepest, darkest crevices where you thought no one else could reach. And he brings his forgiving, sympathetic, gracious, loving, tender touch even to those deepest, darkest places that we're most ashamed of or feel most defeated in. I was going to say this, but I'm not sure most people will understand it. Jesus is the Heineken for your soul. Remember the Heineken adverts that used to say, you know, this is the beer that reaches places other beers don't reach? Jesus is that. He's the Heineken for your soul. Other beers are available. Even when we prove faithless, even when we prove unfaithful, even when we prove fickle, and even when we keep failing by committing the same sins over and over and over again, Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost because he is an eternal high priest who lives forever and has all power through his once-for-all sacrifice and through his indestructible life 
He's able to do what no Aaronic priest could do. He's able to do what Moses couldn't do. He's able to do what the law couldn't do. He's able to save you and me to the utmost. And he could do it because he did not save himself. He could do it because he took all of our guilt and our shame away. He could do it because he paid our penalty on the cross. And now he's alive and he's still working for our salvation. Now, how does he do the work of salvation from heaven? Well, that's the second question. How does Jesus do his work in heaven? Well, in verse 25, we're told that it's through intercession and prayer. That Jesus is actively representing us before the throne of God above, as we sang about this morning at the first song, and he is interceding for us. He is praying for us. Now, in verse 25, we're not told the content of the prayers that he prays for us, but in the New Testament, we see Jesus praying for his followers and his disciples, and we get some indication of the kind of things that he might be praying for us right now. So, for instance, in Luke 22, verse 32, Jesus addresses uh, Simon Peter, his disciple, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Or in John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus that he prays before going to the cross. He prays that we would enjoy rich, this is John 17, rich, that we would enjoy rich communion with God, that we would know him as the one true God, that we would have unity together as his people, that we would be kept from the evil one and that we would be sanctified by the truth. So there's some examples of the things that Jesus might be praying for us. So the work that he's doing in heaven right now is a work of salvation. And the way he does it is he's interceding and he's praying for us. And it's moment by moment prayers that all the benefits and all the blessings of his sacrifice on the cross might be applied to us. That's what he's praying. In heaven, with nail-pierced hands and feet, with a side that bears the scar of the spear, with the marks of a crown of thorns upon his forehead... He presents our name to God. He carries us on his heart. And he is ever working to intercede for us that God would provide us with daily supplies of grace and mercy for our poor, weak souls. That we would know daily mercy for our daily sins. That we would know daily grace for our daily necessities. That he is praying that we would be protected. That we would be transformed and strengthened and feel his love and preserve that he would preserve us that he would persevere us that we would be encouraged that we would grow in Christ likeness that we would mature that he would empower us by his spirit that we would experience his forgiveness that we would know his care for us that in moments of anxiety he would calm us that he would provide all that we need that he would bless us that he would assure us that he would sustain us it's it's a work that he's doing interceding on our behalf so that God would save us from our present weaknesses, from our present sufferings, from our present trials and persecutions and temptations and the accusations of Satan. In fact, it's safe to assume that the work that Jesus is doing in heaven now is an intercession, a prayer that covers anything and everything that would keep us from our final salvation. That's what he's praying for. That's what he's doing right now. That we would be kept... As Peter says in 1 Peter, to the last day. For an inheritance that is un, undefiled and imperishable uh, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Who by? By Jesus who is interceding for us. 
before the throne. So think about this right now, with, in all of the challenges of your life, in all of the struggles that you face, in all of the things that are going on with your life right now, Jesus is praying for you. Right now. Got challenges at work? Looking for a new job? Moving house? Moving to a new school? Planning a wedding? There's uncertainty about whether you can go on holiday this summer. You've got kids at home because they're having to isolate because of COVID. You're in hospital because you're sick. Or you've got Ill, you know, ongoing battles with illness. You've got tight, difficult tensions in your family relationships. You're battling with a besetting sin. You're, your heart feels like it's always under siege from the temptations around you. You're experiencing the challenging behaviour of a child. Or you're experiencing just the aches and pains of ageing. Whatever your situation or circumstance might be. Jesus is praying for us right now. He's praying for us right now. Now imagine if we could somehow connect a microphone to the throne room of heaven and we could broadcast his prayers. How would that make you feel? Well, there would be few things that would calm our anxious hearts like hearing Jesus pray for us. And yet, as Robert Murray McShane, an old Scottish pastor, once said, he said this, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet distance makes no difference. Because he is praying for me now. The writer to the Hebrews would remind us this morning, we have an ever-living ever-interceding high priest who has, is, and will forevermore save us to the utmost through his intercession for us that expresses his loving, his tender heart towards us. And that, my friends, is good news. Amen? Now, who does God do the work for? Who does, sorry, who does Jesus do the work in heaven for? Well, verse 25, he does it for all those who draw near to God through Christ. So this morning, if you would call yourself a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have turned from your sins and recognized your need of a saviour and you have declared your trust and hope in Jesus Christ alone, to save you from your sins, then verse 25 is one that you should print on a t-shirt, put on a mug, put in a picture frame, and hang in your house, if you are such inclined. Because this is a promise for you and me. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this is a verse that is an invitation to you, that you can get in on this, by acknowledging your need of Jesus and putting your faith in him. Now the final question is what are the effects? What should this truth do? What are the effects of Jesus' work in heaven for us? And I've just got four quick things. Four quick things. You won't find these in the text, but these are implications of the truth that we find there. Here's the first one. It should bring assurance. 
It should bring assurance. You know, we are so conditioned to live by the clock and the calendar. Everything is measured in seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years and decades and centuries and millennia. And we're told nothing lasts forever. Everything has a shelf life. Everything has an expiry date. It's printed on almost everything that you buy and bring into your house from the supermarket. Used before 29th of June. Nothing lasts forever, right? Wrong. This does. Verse 25, uttermost means, one of its senses means forever. As an undying, always living high priest, Jesus doesn't offer almost salvation and sometimes salvation. He, utters utter, he, he offers uttermost salvation and always salvation. See those two words there, uttermost, since he always lives. There's no expiration date. Our salvation is secure. This means that in Christ, God will never reject you. He will never turn you away. There is no one or nothing that can snatch you out of his hands, as we sang in the last song. There's nothing that we can do that will wriggle out of his loving, tender embrace. We might sin to the uttermost, but Christ's saving work goes to the uttermost. It always overwhelms. It always outruns. It always outpaces our sins. So that Paul would write in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? For if God did not spare his own only son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not together with him freely give us all things? And what can separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists a whole bunch of stuff. And he says, no, of course, none of this can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This truth is supposed to bring assurance to our souls that when we're tempted to think, am I forgiven? Can God really love me? Is he good? The writer to the Hebrews would say this, he saves to the uttermost those who trust in him. Be assured of your salvation. Secondly, it brings joy. Think about this. If Jesus is praying for you in heaven... And all the power of the risen living Jesus is working for you. That should put a smile on your face, shouldn't it? My goodness, he cares for you. He loves you. He went to the cross for you. He rose again for you. He's, right, he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you right now. You're precious to him. All his saving power is engaged on your behalf. To save you to the uttermost. That should make you the most happy, the most joyful, the most thankful, the most glad person in the room. And it should make us sing when we can. And it should make us worship him. And it should make us smile. And we should smile in such a way, with such joy and gladness, that the people around us go, what's different about you? And you say, Jesus is. Do you want to know about him? He could do this for you too. It should bring joy to our souls. Thirdly, it should bring confidence. <clears throat> confidence... That because Jesus intercedes for, on our behalf, we can approach the throne of grace with our prayers. Knowing that through Christ's work on our behalf, our prayers will be heard. And our prayers will be answered by the Father. We should approach him with confidence. That's, that's a theme that runs all the way through the Hebrews. Approach with confidence. Draw near with confidence. Come near with confidence. Why? Because he saves to the uttermost. 
So we should approach God in prayer with confidence. This should make a difference to when we have church prayer meetings because we think, wow, I get to go and talk to God about my things that I'm bothered about and that I want to see him do. Is he reluctant? Is he going to turn up if I turn up? Yes, he's already there. And he wants you there too. Because he's listening and he's willing to answer and he's willing to move because Jesus is there and his all-prevailing intercession means that our prayers come through him to the Father and they don't hit the ceiling. And one of the ways that we can be Christ-like, you know, we, always, we want to talk about growing to be more like Jesus. Here's a way that we can be more Christ-like. Intercede for other people. As Jesus intercedes for us, one of the ways that we could become more Christ-like is by praying for our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Confident in the knowledge that because Jesus is praying, our prayers will be heard. And so one of the ways we could become more like Jesus is to pray for one another. So let's ask one another, how can I pray for you? Can I pray for you now? I'm praying for you. Text them in the morning. Do whatever you need to do. You know, connect, ring, phone, in the park, after church, whatever it might be. How can I pray? Let me pray for you. Because that's one way we could be like Jesus. And we could be confident to do that because Christ is praying for us and he's not only setting an example for us, he's interceding for us, which makes it possible. And then fourthly and finally, this word, this verse should bring hope. As we said right at the beginning, we're very confident on knowing what God has done in Christ in the past. He died. Christ has died and risen again. And now we've seen another part of his work is that right now he's interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. But we know, don't we, that there is a work yet to be done where one day he shall come again and he will gather together all of his people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Everyone who has loved his name, everyone who has called upon his name, everyone who has heard his voice and followed him, everyone who has confessed him as Lord and Saviour and he will gather us together and then he will make all things new. And there will be no more sorrow and no more sickness and no more separation and no more sin and no more death. And we shall experience salvation to the uttermost, fully and finally. And that will be a happy day when our high priest finally comes to take us to be his people. And we pray with John in Revelation 20 verse 22. Come Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.